Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 22. We'll start at 1, 22, and we'll read through to uh, chapter 2, verse 3. Um, it's good to be back with you. Mary and I were gone last Sunday. We had a uh, vacation the, the week prior. We didn't get to go anyplace fancy. It was a staycation. Stayed home, got some work done around the house, um, but it was a good time. And I uh, just want to let you know I will be gone also next Sunday because I have the great privilege of conducting that wedding ceremony uh, where Josh Rodenbeck and Mandy Liley are going to be united in marriage in Michigan next week. So uh, looking forward to that. Um, it's going to be Larry Belcher, a ruling elder here at New Life, who will be preaching next Sunday. So I'm sure Larry will do uh, an excellent job. So the Sunday after that, we will resume with First Peter. So we've been kind of taking some uh, little hiatus here and there from First Peter, but we are seeking God willing to work our way all the way through this New Testament book, just one uh, passage at a time. And uh, by way of introduction, <clears throat> I want to remind you about some very exciting things that are going on here in the life of the church. A couple Sundays ago, we told you about the plans that we have for September 6 and 7. Um, on September 6, we are going to have a, a big party here at New Life outside with food and games and music, and we're going to celebrate the opening of this new sanctuary. And so we're really excited about that, praying for good weather, um, encourage you all to come and to bring as many people with you as you would like. We're going to have a good time uh, on that day, Saturday, September 6th. Then the next day is Sunday, of course, September 7th, and so that's the day when we're going to have our official kind of grand opening service in the new sanctuary, Sunday, September 7th. So again, please plan to be here and bring as many people as you'd like. We'd sure love to see the sanctuary uh, packed out. Uh, on that morning. <clears throat> now we expect that we will be able to worship in the new sanctuary before then. We just don't know exactly when that's going to start. So hopefully we'll have a few Sundays in the month of August when we'll be able to, to worship and just kind of get used to the new surroundings there. Uh, but September 6 and 7 um, is the big weekend. Now probably some of you have been thinking about this. I know I have as we look to the transition into the new sanctuary, you know that this is going to involve a lot of changes uh, in the life of this congregation. And we're coming to an end of an era in the life of this church and about to enter a new era where things are never going to be quite the same. For the last three years, we've been running three services, not in the summers, but We've been running three services on Sunday mornings, and what that really has essentially amounted to is basically three different congregations. Um, you know, I have talked with people on more than one occasion who don't even know who goes to church here in another service. You know, some people come first service and don't see people who come third service. They've been going to the same church for months, maybe years, and don't even know each other. Um, well, when we get into this new sanctuary, that's, that's going to change. We're all going to be together, and the congregation is going to look very different. 
In addition to that, we are hoping that we'll have some visitors, we'll have some newcomers, people who are interested to check out the new sanctuary, and so we'll have a lot of new faces, and um, the congregation will look very different. Uh, think about the parking situation. Because, you know, over the last few years, with the three services, the cars who have come in here have been spread out over the course of the morning. But when we get into the new sanctuary, they're all going to be coming here at once. <laughs> so we've got some expansion going on in the parking lot to accommodate that. But, you know, that's, that's going to change some things. Now, uh, I, I have been able to go over in the new sanctuary and, and check it out. I'm, you know, I'm the pastor, so I get to do that kind of thing. Um, <laughs> And I just want to report to you that I think it looks great. I mean, I'm, I'm very excited. They are getting very close to finishing up things. New carpet is being laid now. The paint is up on the walls. Uh, lights are on and working. So the building is very, very close uh, to being finished. And like I said, I, personally, I'm, I'm thrilled. But I know that maybe not all of you will agree with me when you see the new sanctuary. So here's another change. There could be that some of you are going over there, you haven't seen anything, you get there, and it's like, you know, you don't really like that color on the wall. You don't really like that style of carpet. You don't understand why this pole goes here and that wall goes there and why the floor plan is laid out the way it is. And you just start to feel disappointed. This isn't the church that it used to be. Here's all these people that I don't know. What's happened to my church? And we could be in a situation that would give great opportunity to the enemy to wreak some real havoc in this congregation. So we're excited about the changes that are about to take place, but we need to be realistic about the challenges that could be involved here. I was with um, Mary's family over July 4th on Friday. <laughs> we were celebrating the holiday, and I was talking to my brother-in-law who attends a church that happened to build just a couple of years ago, and he said that somebody said to him when they were in the building process that the best way to get God out of a church is to build one. <laughs> the best way to get God out of a church is to build one. Well, uh, we don't want that to happen, do we? Um, this text of Scripture that comes to us here in 1 Peter, as we go through this series called Walking in Hope, a study of 1 Peter, this passage, I think, comes to us providentially at a very good time. It has a lot to say to us about how we can approach the changes and transition that we are about to uh, go, go through. So <clears throat> why don't you stand, please? And I'm going to read this to us. And uh, again, I want to emphasize how important it is for you to, to bring your Bibles on Sunday mornings so that you can follow along with the sermon because uh, we try to root these messages as much as possible in the Word, so it's important to uh, pay careful attention to what's being said. This is the English Standard Version, 1 Peter, starting with verse 22. It says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. 
And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up to salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Uh, Father, please open our eyes. We want to see you preaching of your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Okay, we're going to look at three things here that support what is this, um, what I'm seeing is the central verse in this passage, which is there at the end of verse 22. You might remember where we were before. The last time we were in 1 Peter, Peter gave us these exhortations back in verses 15 and 16 to be holy. You shall be holy, for I am holy. You shall be holy in all your conduct, he said. And we considered some of the implications of that for our own personal lives. But the practice of holiness is not just something we do individually. The practice of holiness is something we do corporately as well, something we do as a community. And that's what Peter is now moving to. I think he still has this exhortation to holiness in his mind. And we come here to verse 22, and at the end of this verse it says this, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And that's what we, as a congregation, New Life Presbyterian Church, as we get ready to go into this new building, that's what I want us to hear and to hang on to and to meditate on. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. My hope and my prayer is that as new people come to this church, as we get in the new sanctuary, we got visitors checking things out, that the thing that would occur to them and be impressed upon them, perhaps more than anything, is that this is a place where people love one another. They love one another earnestly. I can feel it. I can see it. I can taste it. That's what we want to see happen. And Peter here is exhorting us to do this. And so I want to answer three questions in light of that verse. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Three questions. Number one, what does it look like to do that? Then secondly, why are we called to do that? And then thirdly, how does it happen? How do we get the power to be able to love in this particular way? So the first thing is this. What does this look like to love one another earnestly? Now, let me remind you of the context. I hope this is something you take away from this study on 1 Peter. I've been repeating it often, but remember the context. Remember Peter is writing to Christians who are living in a culture in what was called Asia Minor 2,000 years ago. Today it's called modern-day Turkey. And these Christians were living in a culture that was very hostile to what they happened to believe. They lived among people who didn't know Jesus, didn't understand why they believed and lived like they did, and these Christians felt ostracized and alienated and out of step with the world and the culture in which they lived. And so Peter is writing to these Christians, and what he wants to impress upon them is this, that when Christians come out of the world and then come back into the church, into the fellowship of the church, and to worship with God's people on Sunday morning, that this ought to be a place of refuge and safety. This ought to be a place where we come out of the world and sense encouragement and affirmation and love and acceptance. 
When you're out in the world and you're dealing with the pressures that you experience in your workplace or at the university, in the classroom, or in your family, you're the only Christian and you're feeling pressured, you're feeling beaten up, you're feeling battered, the last thing you want to do is come to the church and get beaten up and battered. And so Peter is trying to make this point that, look, this is supposed to be an alternative here. This is a community of people that doesn't operate like the world does. This is a place where we find love. So, in verse 1 of chapter 2, Peter lists for us some vices that destroy relationships and by virtue of that destroy community. If, If you're looking for a way to destroy a church, practice these things. So these vices are listed in verse 1. So I think what Peter's done here in verse 22, going back to what I mentioned a moment ago, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. He kind of diverts from that a little bit, explains some background information in verses 23 to 25. When he gets back to verse 1, chapter 2, he's saying, so, you know, therefore, because of this command to love one another, here's what I want you to do. Here's what it looks like to love one another. So he mentions these these vices. So let's just go through these. One, he mentions malice. Malice. That's the ESV translation. That's just kind of a general term that means evil. It means ill intent. Um, I think he probably puts this at the beginning as kind of an umbrella term under which the rest of these terms are going to follow. So malice, desire to harm, then he goes on and mentions deceit. Deceit. Well, that's pretty self-explanatory, right? Deceit is just falsehood. It's, it's trickery. It's, it's telling lies. But I think it's even more than that. It's not just telling outright lies. It's when you misrepresent facts, when you distort the truth, when you're asked to give an account of something and you leave out essential details because they don't favor your position, so you put those aside, that's a form of deceit. Falsehood, lying, misleading. Then he mentions hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. This is something Christians are accused of all the time. So many hypocrites in the church. Well, what is hypocrisy? Hypocrisy is when you give an impression on the outside that doesn't match what's actually going on on the inside. You make things appear one way as people are watching you when inside in your heart you have entirely different motives and intentions. So, for instance, service is done, you go out into the foyer, you see somebody, and you walk up to them with a big smile on your face. Hey, how are you? It's great to see you. You give them a hug. You shake their hand. How have you been? We need to get together. Great to see you. Turn around, you walk, and before you're even at your car, you're talking to your spouse or your friend about all the things you don't like about that person. The clothes they had on, the fact that that person did this or did that. You've never liked that person, but boy, you sure made it look like you liked them. That's hypocrisy giving an impression on the outside that doesn't match what is actually going on on the inside. Well, the next term that he mentions is envy. Envy. What's envy? Envy is a little different than coveting. Coveting is when you want what other people have. Envy is when you resent what other people have. 
So very often we'll have announcements that are made from the front of this church before prayer sometimes, and you'll hear about good things that have happened in people's lives. You'll hear that some people are engaged. You'll hear that some people are pregnant. You'll hear that people maybe got a new job, or you'll go to people's houses, and you'll see that they have a really big house, and it's much bigger than your house, and their cars are better than yours, and you resent it. You resent that people have more than you. You resent that good things are happening in other people's lives. Why aren't those things happening to me? Why are they blessed so much more than I am? That's envy. That's envy. That's a good way to destroy a relationship. Envy other people in the church. It's a good way to destroy a church. And then he mentions one more item. Slander. And this is the one that I think is probably the most serious. At the very end of chapter 2, verse 1, slander. I don't know if that's why Peter saved it for the end, maybe, because it's, it's perhaps the worst of this entire list. But slander or gossip would be another way of looking at this. Slander, gossip, this is speech that seeks intentionally to harm somebody else's reputation. You get people together, you start running somebody down. You start saying all these awful things about them. You gain people on your side to join with you in saying these negative things about this person. That's a very dangerous thing to allow to get a foothold in a church. That's one of the quickest ways to undo a congregation is slander people. Um, I haven't been going through the list here. Um, there's a movie called Doubt. It came out a few years ago starring Philip Seymour Hoffman and um, Meryl Streep. And uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman plays a priest. Meryl Streep plays a nun. And Meryl Streep becomes kind of suspicious about some things about uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman and Hoffman becomes convinced that he's been, he's been slandered. And so there's a scene in this movie when he's um, giving this sermon, and he tells this story as an example of, of what gossip does or what slander does. And so he tells this story. So he's a priest, but he's telling a story about a priest. So the priest says, there's this priest. And to the priest comes this woman, and the woman says, you know what, I think I'm guilty of slander and gossip. The priest happens to know that that's true, and so he says, you're right, you have been doing that. Um, and so here's what I want you to do. And he says, I want you to go home and get a pillow, and then take that pillow up onto the roof of your house and get a knife out and cut the pillow open. And then I want you to come back and see me. So the woman goes home, she gets out the pillow, she gets a knife, she goes up on top of the roof, she cuts open the pillow, and out of the pillow bursts forth all these feathers, and they just fly into the air all over the neighborhood. And then she goes back to the priest, and she says, I did what you told me to do. I took the pillow up, I cut it open, like you asked. And then the priest says, well, here's what I want you to do now. I want you to go back and pick up every one of those feathers. Gather them all up. And she says, I can't do that. I don't know where they all went. They all got caught up in the wind. The wind took them to places where I have no idea where they are right now. And the priest says, that's what gossip does. 
These slanderous things you say, they get picked up by the wind, they get taken to the far corners of the church and the community, and they're impossible to find, and they're impossible to get back. But the damage is done. So Peter mentions here at the end of verse 1, slander as one of these community-destroying vices. Now, what does he want us to do with all of these things, this big list of vices? To go back to the very beginning of verse 1, put them away. Do you see that? Put away all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Put them away. The word there is a word that's used other places in the Bible for taking off clothes. So here's what happens in my house very often in the winter. When I come home, I'll have a coat on, and I take off my coat, and I just hang it on a chair. And my wife doesn't like that so much. She says, you need to put your coat in the closet. And so I think I'm maybe getting a little better at that. So I come in now with my coat, and I go to the closet. I open it up. I take the coat off, and I put it in the closet, and I shut the door. The reason my wife wants that to happen is she doesn't want the coat cluttering up her house. She wants the coat out of sight. And that's the sense of what Peter is saying here. These vices are things you want to take off and put away. Hang them up and shut the door so they're out of sight. That's one of the ways we love one another earnestly. See, remember, Peter's thinking that his readers are people who are dealing with enough malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander out in the world where they're trying to live as faithful Christians and they're being oppressed and alienated and discriminated against. So Peter is saying, you know, you've, you've got that to deal with out there. Let's not deal with that in here. Put those things away. That's what it looks like to love one another earnestly. Well, the second thing that we're going to consider here in relation to this command is why are we called to this? Why is Peter <clears throat> calling us to do this? Because after all, this is not a command that's given to everybody. It's only a command given to a specific group of people. That is God's people, the church. So let's look at verse 22. It's very clear. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Why? Since you have been born again. The reason that you're called to love one another earnestly is because something's happened to you. The Holy Spirit's done a work in you. You are people who are born again by God's Spirit. Now, this is a phrase that has already shown up. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again, it says in verse 3. So Peter's picking this up again. So this will be a little bit of a review when we covered verse 3. We talked about this. But to, to be born again, that's a, it's an important theological term. Um, another word that's used for it is, is regeneration uh, or the new birth. You know, it's a little bit like when you go into a dark room and you flip on a light switch and the lights come on. When someone's born again, that's what happens. The lights come on. The spiritual lights come on. And you're able to see certain things differently. This is a work of the Holy Spirit 
that God does to bring his people to himself. So like, this is how it works. If we get kind of a broad overview, bird's eye overview of salvation, it works like this. And if we think about this in a Trinitarian way, we believe God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Here's how it works. The Father plans our salvation from before the foundation of the world. And then the Father sends the Son. He comes into this world in the person of his Son, Jesus Christ, to accomplish our salvation. Jesus comes and lives for us. He lays down his life for us. He bleeds for us on the cross. He dies and is resurrected from the dead. And through that, he has accomplished our salvation. But if the whole chain of events stopped right there, nobody would be a Christian. Do you know that? If Jesus came, lived, died, and was resurrected, and then it all stopped right there, no one would be a Christian. Because something else has to happen. That is, you have to be woken up out of your spiritual slumber. You're born into this world with darkened eyes and hard hearts. You're born into this world in rebellion against God. And if you're going to believe that God has sent Jesus to die for you and be resurrected from you, a miraculous work of his spirit has to happen in your life. And that's what the spirit does. He causes you to be born again. So the father plans salvation, the son accomplishes salvation, and the spirit applies salvation. That's what Peter's talking about here. Now, this, this is a very important um, point to grasp and understand because it's easy to think that it might be possible for me to find the acceptance of God without this. In other words, I think there are a lot of people who profess to be Christians and they think they're fine before God, but they haven't been born again. I think there's a lot of people in that category. You know, an example of this is Nicodemus in John chapter 3, right? Do you remember that? Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's a good man. He's a teacher of the law. Outwardly speaking, he's righteous. He has a good reputation. He even says a lot of good things about Jesus. He comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, you're a teacher of the law. You've come from God. He says all these right things about Jesus. If there's anybody who could get to heaven on his own, by his own efforts, it'd be Nicodemus. And all Jesus can say to the man is, Nicodemus, you must be born again. That's your issue. You haven't been born again. You're a good person, you do all the right things, but you haven't been born again. And then Jesus says, unless you're, being, unless you're born again, you can't enter the kingdom of God. That's how important this is. That's why Peter is emphasizing this. To be born again, it's... it's Again, it's when your, your heart, you know, you used to not care about spiritual things. Now you do. You used to not be bothered by your sin. Now you are. Jesus meant nothing to you. Now he means everything. There's been a change. It's not that you're perfect. It's not that you have it all together. But there's a change in your heart. Your affections are directed in a new path now. That's evidence of being born again. I mean, that's the question I think we're all asking after you hear this kind of thing, right? Have I been born again? I mean, maybe there's no more important question for you to ask. Have I been born again? And evidence of that, for sure, turning from your sin, believing in Jesus, just like I described. There's been a change in you. You know that something's changed. That, that's the first evidence. But do you know what a second evidence is that you've been born again? You love Christians. 
You love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Isn't that what he says in verse 22 and 23? Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Why? Because you've been born again. Because that's what born again people do. They love the church. They love their brothers and sisters in Christ. This is what John says here in 1 John 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves one another has been born of God. This is an evidence that the Holy Spirit has done a miraculous work in your life. Well, what, what does this look like? I mean, it's just, you know, this happens in different ways. I'm not saying that you, that you love everybody in the church equally. Uh, I'm not saying you get along with everybody equally. We all have different personality styles. I'm not saying you want to be with people all the time. If you're more introverted, that's, that's harder to do. But, but there's, there's a desire in your heart to be connected to God's people somehow. You, you want to give your resources to bless the people of God. You want to encourage, you want to take part in building up other Christians. That's what you, you have a desire to do that. You take part in that. You want to serve the church. You want to identify with the church. You want to come up and say, yes, I'm going to commit myself to this local congregation and membership. That's a way to show your seriousness about loving one another earnestly. It's an evidence of being born again. You know, I hear people say all the time, you know, I love Jesus, but not the church. I love Jesus, but not the church. I mean, here's what I like to say in response to that. That's like saying, yes, I want to marry you, but I don't want to have anything to do with your mom, dad, or brother, or sister. Now, married people, how well does that work? How's that gone for you if you've tried to do that? It doesn't work, does it? When you marry somebody, you not only take that person, you take that person's family. And if you're going to believe in Jesus and trust Him as your Savior, you take not just Him, you take His family. It's not an option for you to take Him and not His family. And this is not just some command to make things hard on you. This is, this is good for you. This is what you need in order to persevere in your faith. You need the support, the love, the encouragement, the affirmation, the acceptance of other Christians. You've got to have that because, again, when you're out in the world, you're not going to get it. I mean, an example of this is Johnny Cash, country singer, um, Christian man who you know, didn't always live the best Christian life. And, you know, there's a lot of things that happened in Johnny Cash's life that might cause someone to question whether he was really a Christian or not. Um, personally, I don't have any doubt that he was a born-again Christian. And one of the reasons why is because of this. He says this, My policy of aloneness and severed fellowship from other committed Christians would weaken me spiritually. Missing it would leave me vulnerable and easy prey for all the temptations and destructive vices that the backstage of the entertainment world has to offer. Now, you might not be in the entertainment world, but there's enough temptation, enough destructive vices in the world in general to bring you down, and a policy of aloneness will not serve you well. So that's why we're called to this, because we've been born again this is what born-again people do. They love one another earnestly. They love their brothers and sisters earnestly. Well, one more thing, 
How does this happen? How is it, in other words, that a person is born again so that that person can then love brothers and sisters in Christ earnestly from a pure heart? How does that happen again? Or how does that happen? Well, look at verse 23. Since you've been born again, Peter goes on, how did this happen? Well, it didn't come from perishable seed. It came from an imperishable seed. And, and where did that seed come from? It came through the living and abiding Word of God. This is the means by which God regenerates people, causes them to be born again, brings them to Himself in faith. It's when the Scriptures, when the Bible, when the Word goes forth and enters people's ears. That's how God does it. People are not born again by means of a lot of programs in a church. People are not born again necessarily because we have some kind of a big sanctuary. People are not born again because we are the culturally relevant church. Although all those things might be good and those might be things that we should emphasize, that's not the means by which people are brought to faith. It's through the Word. It's through the Bible. It's through the Scriptures. Now, what's so great about the Scriptures? Well, he goes on in verse 24. He says, here is what the Bible is like. And he quotes Isaiah 40, which is what Josh read to us a moment ago, the Old Testament reading. He says, here's what the Word's like. He says, all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. Here's what he's saying. He's saying all flesh, that is, that is all uh, you know, natural human existence in this world, natural human existence is like grass. And even in its glory, even when our human lives are able to obtain wealth and beauty and fame and splendor, no matter what humanity is able to achieve in its greatest moment, Nonetheless, it's like grass. It's like a flower which fades. It's like that bouquet of flowers you get at your house and you put it in the middle of the table and when it comes through the door, it looks beautiful. And 10 days later, you're putting it in the trash because it's withered and it's faded away and it's dead. And this is what Peter is saying. This is what human glory is like. It lasts for a little while, but then it dissipates, it withers, it fades away. Uh, we were, last week, we were having this discussion. It was my mom and my wife, and we were talking about just kind of throwing out names of people that we thought were extremely famous. So that was the question, like, what, what are the you know, greatest household names you can think of, the most famous people that you can think of in, in history? And so we were throwing out names, mostly from kind of entertainment industry. And, um, and my mom says, uh, Betty Grable and Edgar Bergen and Mary Martin. Now, how many people have heard of, of those people? Okay, a, a few, and mostly those who are over, you know, 30 or 40 years old. Uh, <laughs> if this were a room full of college students, I assure you nobody would have heard of those individuals. 
But there was a day when they were famous. There was a day when everybody knew those names. And now they're forgotten. You know, the day's going to come when we're going to say, Justin Bieber? Who's, who's that? Taylor Swift? Ne never heard of her. Ben Affleck? What, who, who's, who's that? Who's that? And you'll have to go to Wikipedia and try to find some information about them. And then you'll forget about them the next day. That, that's, that's what Peter is saying. That's what human glory and fame is like. It's fleeting and then it disappears. But what he goes on to say is, the Word of God is so very different than that. It's living and it's abiding. It remains forever. And it is through the Word that this imperishable seed has been planted in you, Christian, who have been born again. You've been born again by a seed that is not going to perish and is not going to wither and is not going to die. So while the names of these people I mentioned are all going to fade from the view of the American population one day, you, Christian, who are born again, can know that your name is never going to fade away from the view of the God who has lovingly redeemed you and saved you. You're going to be famous forever in the eyes of God because this imperishable seed has been given to you. That's what Peter is saying. That's how important the word is. That's how important the Word is. That's how important the Bible is. That's how important the Scriptures are. Now, one last thing. How is it that this Word gets to us? And you see it at the very end of chapter 1. This Word is the good news that was preached to you. This is how the Word got to you. It was preached, Peter says. That's how you heard the Gospel. That's how you heard the Bible, through preaching. Now, certainly, if you read the Bible on your own in your personal devotion, the Word of God is still powerful, and God can use it to cause you to be born again through that. That's true. But the emphasis that Peter's making here is the word preached. You know, there's sometimes I wonder, I, I have to admit, there's sometimes I wonder, is it really worth my time spending 15 to 20 hours every week preparing these sermons? I mean, couldn't I be out doing something more productive like building a house for Habitat for Humanity or something? or I mean, certainly there's a better way for me to be spending my time. But I read this passage and I realize the answer to that is no. Because this is the means by which God saves people. The Word is preached. The Spirit joins with the Word. People are made to be born again in the Spirit and they're redeemed. This is what a guy named Christopher Ash says, when every other strategy is seen to fail, the preaching of the word of Christ will be seen for what it is, God's strategy to assemble a broken world. Friend, this is why it's so important for you. It's so important for you to be in church on Sunday mornings. It's so important for you to be sitting under the preaching of the word of God on a regular basis. I, I'm not saying it's important for you to come hear me. I'm not saying it's important for you to come hear Bible band and sermons. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying it's important for you to sit under the word preached wherever it happens to come from, whether it's me or Pastor Brian or Josh or Adam or Larry Belcher or whomever. And if this ever becomes a church where the living and abiding word of God is not preached, go to another church. Go somewhere else. Because that's what you need, the Scriptures. You need the Bible. 
You need the word, and you need to hear it over and over and over and over and over and over again. That's why it's important to be here on Sunday morning. So let me just go backwards, kind of sum this up. What Peter is saying here is that when the word is preached, when the word goes forth, the spirit joins with that word. And then the spirit causes a miraculous regeneration of a person's heart as that person believes and trusts in Jesus. And when that happens, that person is then equipped and enabled and empowered to love brothers and sisters in Christ. The power to love one another comes by repeatedly sitting under the preached word as God's Spirit goes forth and makes people different. If we concentrate on that, friends, if that is our priority and our goal, that's one way we can make sure that God stays in this place. We sang it earlier this morning. We are God's people, chosen of the Lord, born of the Spirit, established by His Word. That's us. Let's pray. Father, um, we thank You for the living and abiding Word of God. We thank You that You have awakened our hearts. We thank You for giving us eyes to see and ears to hear. And now, Lord, we pray that as Your Spirit lives in us, that we would be equipped to love one another earnestly from a pure heart as You've commanded us to do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.